Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. So hello there guys and welcome back to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. I hope that you guys are well. The heat wave in the UK, for those of you that have been following it abroad, uh, it's been quite brutal. But nonetheless, we've managed to survive that and cooler temperatures have come our way. The weather's broken up a little bit. As much as I love talking about the weather shows how boring I am. But nonetheless, we're going to get into the Formula 1 stuff. And I hope you guys have been doing okay. But of course, if you have uh, joined us for the first time, and you don't know what we're about, just a quick reminder that we are the F1, independent F1 podcast, I should say, made by fans and for the fans as we bring you race reviews, previews, and all of the latest news, talking points, and gossip in the world of Formula One for your listening or viewing pleasure. And this episode, we've got a very special guest joining us. We have Mark Hamilton from the Scuderia F1 podcast. Mark, first of all, thanks for coming on, and uh, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. And I feel better knowing that we are not the only podcast that introduces every episode with regionalized weather updates based on <laughs> based on where we are. And people always give me advice like, don't make your podcast too regional. You're going to turn off your audience. But we do it every single week. And you know, it's crazy. I grew up in the UK. I went to primary school there. I don't ever remember weather similar to what you've been experiencing recently. So obviously it's a byproduct of climate change, et cetera. But uh, I'm glad that the heat wave has broken and it's cooled down a little bit for you. Yeah, it's, it's really, really nice. I mean, I'm not quite, quite sure where how the weather is where you are at the moment. I probably should reciprocate the kindness uh, that you are offered me uh, before we start recording. But how how are things in your neck of the woods at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. So great question. So we are based in the Pacific Northwest of North America. So in uh, the Pacific Northwest on the West Coast, there's a cluster of cities, uh, Vancouver, and about an hour and a half, two hours south of that is is Seattle. And a couple hours south of that is Portland. So we're based in, in Vancouver. So it's kind of a unique, isolated pocket of population in North America. But yeah, we're based in Vancouver. Still a little bit frustrated that our Formula E event was canceled a few months ago and none of us have got our refunds back. But otherwise, everything's going well here. And, and it's interesting because because through much of the last decade, we typically have warm but wet summers because we're basically a city that's been carved out of the rainforest. Uh, but the last decade or so, our summers have been getting suffocatingly hot regularly in the 30s. And last week or last year, we had a period of uh, a week where we were regularly in the 40s, which is something we've never experienced before. But but yeah, everything is doing really well, man. Enjoying the summer break, just kind of pumping out some interviews and some other kind of fun content on our, on our podcast stream, but doing really well. Thanks for asking. And of course, obviously, it's a great opportunity for our listeners and followers that aren't familiar with the Scuderia F1 podcast. Perhaps, Mark, if you could, just to enlighten some of our followers of what the sort of content that you produce, perhaps some of the interviews you've got coming up so that they can find out where they can check out your content. 
Yeah, I, I very much appreciate that. So a little bit of background. I, I started a podcast three or four years ago called Flash F1, which I thought at the time was one of the only Canadian-based podcasts, although our audience was almost exclusively American. And I, I later discovered that not only was I not the only Canadian-based F1 podcast, but there was another one, and it was based out of the same city, just a few blocks away from where I live. So I built a really good relationship with the individual that was running that show. His name is Mark Daly. We combined forces, put all of our, all of our eggs into the one basket, the Scuderia. F1 podcast basket. Um, and obviously the show's uh, grown exponentially that since then. But of course, I think that's largely a byproduct of Drive to Survive and all the kind of new interest in Formula One. So we don't take too much credit for, for our numbers, but our, our show structure is similar to yours. We do a weekly news show, which is the backbone of our program. We do race recaps, but we also do a couple of other fun segments. We do an interview series. So this year, we've obviously been lucky enough to interview uh, Jessica Hawkins from Aston Martin. We spoke to Megan Gilks from W Series. She's actually going to be an intern at Aston Martin later this year as an engineer. Uh, we've talked regularly with um, other drivers at uh, Amber Balkin. Uh, we had a great interview with her. She's a, a Canadian NASCAR driver in the U.S. based out of North Carolina. And just last night, we interviewed Hamda Al-Kobesi, who is a young Emirati driver who's competing in the European Regional Championship. So we tried to do a, a lot of fun stuff. We've also interviewed some really cool people this year, including um, a particularly famous uh, F1 helmet artist named Tyler Senarusha. He does the helmet designs for a lot of drivers, including Nicholas Latifi. So we tried to bring new new personalities and new perspectives to our listeners so they can get a sense of motorsports from different dimensions. And we also just really like introducing our audience to young drivers. And also selfishly, it's a really great way to build relationships with these folks as they continue to grow and develop. And we have a great relationship on our show with Nicholas Latifi, obviously a Canadian driver. And that stems from the fact that I began interviewing him way back in his Formula 3, Formula 2 days. So that's a relationship that just persists over time, which is really, really cool. So yeah, we do like I said, a, a weekly news show, we do our race recaps, we do our interview series, but we've also started a new segment called F1 Book Club. So every couple of weeks now, every couple of months, uh, we crowdsource ideas from our audience on a book to review. We sit down, we read the book, and then we come on the podcast and we break it down, talk about the juicy parts, talk about what we learned and things like that. And just last week, re we released our very first episode of that series. And we really, or we uh, reviewed Mark Elvis Priestley's the Mechanic. And that was one mm. heck of a juicy book. So for your audience, if you're looking for something to read in the next couple of weeks, that is a great book to get started with. And I'll second that myself because I read that the other week and it is a fantastic read um, from Mark Priestley. So definitely would recommend that as well. But of course, most important question, Mark, um, is where can our listeners and followers find the Scuderia F1 podcast if they want to tune into some of your great content? Well, I, I appreciate that. And you're such a great host teeing all of this up. But obviously, we're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts as well. That's principally where most of our listeners find us. But you can find us anywhere. We also live stream typically our new shows. So most of our content is available on YouTube as well, although it's not admittedly super pretty. And our principal mean of communicating with our audience right now via social media is Twitter. Uh, we haven't branched into Instagram yet, but you can find us on Twitter at f one pod and you will not be disappointed, listeners. But of course, make sure to check that out after you finish listening to this one, of course. Yes, but, yes, um, <laughs> yes. But um, obviously, Mark, we've got you here to talk Formula One as well as much as we'd love to plug all our content for as long as we can. Um, <laughs> it, it, we've had a pretty interesting first half of the season. But what I want to do before we get started on that, if I may, is something that I've introduced this year on this show for some of our new guests that give up their time to come on this show, just to get a 
a bit of an insight into their interest about F1. Um, and that's with an icebreaker question. So I'm going to run this through you and see where we go with it. If it was possible to give you any F1 car from history and let you drive it at any circuit in the world, and it doesn't have to be an F1 circuit, it could be your local car track, it could be a Formula E circuit, it could be in your car park if you wanted to. Um, what car would you choose to drive and where would you want to drive it? That's a great question. And it's something, you know what, I, I'm going to say this right off the top. I, I grew up in the UK. Um, I remember spending every Sunday with my grandparents having a Sunday roast and watching Formula One. Um, and I absolutely loved the early, the early 90s Williams cars. And of course, I'd left the UK by 1997 when Canadian Jacques Villeneuve won a title in the FW19. But I have a particularly soft spot for the FW19, the 1997 Williams competitor. So I think that that's a car that I would really like to drive. And in terms of where I would want to drive it, I presume I would be terrible at navigating a circuit. So I think I would want to race somewhere that has a lot of runoff and a, <laughs> a, a lot of built-in safety mechanisms. So as much as I detest watching races at Paul Ricard, I feel like that would probably be the safest track for me to navigate in a Formula One car. But definitely that 1997 Williams FW19 is a special car to me, um, principally because it was the car that was piloted by a Canadian driver. The one and only time a Canadian has won a World Drivers' Championship yeah, very much so. And of course, it's such a big year it was for Jacques Villeneuve coming over from IndyCar in 96. A lot of people writing him off. And of course, he proved a lot of people wrong, particularly that season beating uh, no less than Michael Schumacher, of course, which is obviously a very incredible feat. And do you know what? I, I absolutely love the answer. I really do. It's one of my favorite cars, even though admittedly, I am a Ferrari fan. Um, anyone on this show will know uh, that about me that listens to it a few times. They'll know I'm a Ferrari fan. But that was one of the I think one of the most beautiful, pure Formula One cars that I think I've seen growing up. It was very much one that I reminisce with quite often, thinking back in the 90s and growing up watching F1. So uh, I can certainly agree with that answer there, Mark. Awesome. And the only other thing I would add about this, and I don't know if you feel the same way, as time has progressed, I look back at some of these cars, and of course, they are plastered with tobacco livery, which today is unimaginable, like unfathomable. I look back sometimes with these cars with a little bit of unease because the things that I love about these cars is the, the look, the appearance, the sound, but also the livery of these cars. So a little bit uncomfortable just looking back, but I, I, I agree with everything you said. I think it's a, it's a great car from a much simpler, more compact era of Formula One. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, some teams still try to find clever ways of introducing uh, yes. not necessarily direct <laughs> sponsors, but third parties or affiliate sponsors of McLaren, those. McLaren, Ferrari. <laughs> well, exactly. The two most notably, of course, and uh, people talk about Mission Winnow of the past, obviously, uh, as an example that comes to the top of my head. But uh, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was certainly a very interesting era. I'd certainly recommend that to any F1 fan, as you mentioned, you know, not to be a gatekeeper coming into the sport from the drive to survive era and obviously wanting to learn a bit more about the heritage of F1 in a different era. That's definitely a good era to check out. Um, now, of course, Mark, the main reason why we got you here is to do a bit of a mid-season review with me on this episode. And part of that, we're going to be looking at some of the standout performances this season, some performances, of course, that were not so great, as well as some that were so great. And of course, looking at the teams individually and just sort of summarising how we felt that they've coped so far this year. And what I want to do is add a bit of a grading system to this. So, of course, obviously you grew up in the UK, so our grading system was a little bit different to what it might be in, in Canada now. Um, but we're going to apply 
uh, if we can, the Canadian slash North American grading system with uh, letters rather than numbers to go through this one. And I want to start with William. Seeing as you brought them up, I think it's a great place to start this season. And what have you made of William so far this season? Because it's a very hard one to call with them because... They obviously have had expectation to try and make some progression. And whilst they may feel that they've done that, compared to last season, they have fallen back into P10, whereas they were at the very least ahead of Alfa Romeo and Haas. Yeah, it's it's a frustrating story for me. And I think if you look back at really 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, it was, it was easy to make excuses for this team. And, and I think the last two years in particular, the assumption was, look, they're simply not investing in the current car. They're not developing this car because they're putting all of their eggs in the 2022 basket, right? That if you're a team that runs on a shoestring budget, it doesn't make sense to spend significantly on a current car when it's probably not going to help you score a lot of constructors points anyways, which isn't going to turn into significant prize money. So the assumption was the last couple of years, they put all their R&D and all their efforts into the 2022 car. So it was a fresh start for them. And obviously they're pairing a new chassis with the Mercedes power unit, which by and large has been a very capable power unit since 2014 for obvious reasons. I think this year has been a an incredibly disappointing season for them. They have two points finishes, obviously both from Alex Albon. And if you look at the race by race performance of the two drivers, Alex Albon and Nicholas Latifi, Nicholas Latifi has significantly underperformed his teammate, much like he did uh, his uh, teammate, George Russell in 19 and, and 20. But uh, I, I think this is a team that is incredibly disappointing. And I was hoping to see some significant strides here. It also, and I don't want to necessarily go down this path. It also makes me wonder what Dalton's end game is with this team. Obviously they, they, rescue this team away from the clutches of the Williams family, which was both sad, but also necessary because that family simply didn't have the financial resources and wherewithal to continue to compete in Formula One. But I wonder what their end game is, because here we are in the new era of regulation. They are now a country mile behind the rest of the competition. And as everybody is incrementally improving their car, it doesn't appear that they're improving their car as quickly as they need to be. And like I said, they haven't scored a points finish now since Spain. So for me, this is just an incredibly disappointing project. Now, you live in the UK. You're probably a little bit closer to Grove and, and the murmurings of what's happening there. But I'd love to understand a perspective from somebody that lives in that country in terms of what people think are going on with that team. It's a really hard one to tell. As you've mentioned, you've raised a lot of good points, obviously not scoring points since so I think it was was it Miami, I think it was as long ago as that maybe or Spain, one of the two. My, my right, you're right, Miami. Yeah, right. yeah. But and that was down to some brilliant driving from Alex Albon really recovering it in the midfield. Of course, the highlight so far for Williams, you could argue, was Latifi's Q3 appearance in the wet at Silverstone. I mean, it shocked right. a lot of people. Um, myself especially. I remember on the live stream putting out the GoTifi memes and uh, absolutely loving what Nicholas was capable of in the day. It was a brilliant performance from him. But it's a tough one with Williams because, and again, this comes back to my history of watching Formula One for 25 years now, um, showing my age a little bit there. But Williams are a team that's used to winning. It's a team built with the heritage, the facilities, the, the fanfare, the support around, everything about it reeks of success. And it's a complete contrast to where we are right now with Williams. Now, the direction that Jos Capito and Dorison Capital want to take with this team, I, I'm absolutely convinced is one where they want to be successful. How much they're prepared to invest in that is another question. 
And it certainly showed through their development uh, package this this season that they've not been as aggressive as some of the other teams have been. For example, Aston Martin um, have been quite aggressive with their development this season, although to no ends, they've not exactly proved um, that far up the field overall, but they are still making improvements. So for Williams, it feels a bit more like two steps back, one step forward at the moment for them. And that's kind of relative to the competition. They may feel that they are making progress and there's still a way to go to the point where in previous seasons, they may have written it off this season. There's still some hope, but there's still some way off the midfield at least. And that's not really, I think where Williams will want to be long-term. It certainly wouldn't have been that way um, with Claire Williams and Sir Frank Williams, the late Sir Frank Williams. They wouldn't have wanted that to be the case. They want to try and make some tangible progress going forward. So right now, I think the car has been quite decent in places, but it has been very sensitive to a lot of conditions. Um, and that has been below where I see their expectations right now. So, I mean, as I said, to put a letter on this and a grade on this, I would say their season so far has probably been a D minus at best. And it's really not where they want to be. And, and as you mentioned, Mark, I think this comes ultimately down to how much are Doralton Capital prepared to invest in this team in the medium to long term in order to bring that team going forward? Because, they've either got to commit or move it on to someone else. And I'm not quite sure which way they're going to go in the short term. I think you absolutely just nailed what the future of this team is for. It it never made sense to me that Doralton was in this for the long term, that they were going to come in, invest hundreds of millions of dollars in expanding and updating and modernizing the facility and investing in top flight drivers. To me, it was always, let's, let's take this thing that has potential upside from a valuation perspective and polish it up and stabilize it and bring in some great people and then sell it on. So my thought, my perspective is that they are either a front for somebody that we do not yet know, or they bought it with the intention of of selling it. And if that's the case, hopefully they do it sooner rather than later, because I desperately, like you said, I desperately want to see somebody come in and inject the capital necessary to make this team competitive. And in a, in a cost cap era, there's no reason why they shouldn't be competitive. And Again, like I said, I'm so disappointed because for the last few years, we all understood they were not going to be competitive because they were not investing in that generation of car, that all of their investment capital was going towards 2022. And then they come out 2022. And for a number of reasons, they're just flat. But I, I totally agree. Formula One needs Williams to be a competitive team. And I personally need Williams to be a competitive team because I need that linkage to my, my childhood. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely agree. I, I need that nostalgia back. I think as fans exactly. that, that follow the sport, I mean, for some of the younger fans now, if you decide to follow this sport for a few decades, there will be, the, the pecking order may change. It probably will change. And some teams are obviously doing very, very well. We're now struggling at the back and that nostalgia will creep in and you really want them to find a way back. And, and Williams are a prime example of this. And like Aston Martin, which of course we'll move on into a moment, they're investing heavily into their project. Lawrence Stroll is absolutely convinced and ambitious. He wants to be the driving force to take this team forward and believes he has the capital to make that happen. And you can't exactly argue that what they're trying to do in the long term is going to be successful. Whether they do that ultimately, that's a different question. But the ambition is there. I don't see that with Williams. I think they have a solid base, but I think in modern day F1 where every single team now has a solid base, that's no longer enough. What are Williams going to do now that take them to that level again where they feel they belong. Because if they don't move forward, they're going to fall back. Completely agree. I'm excited to talk about Aston Martin. Can we do Aston Martin next? Yes, of course. Um, I might push you for a quick letter grade on Williams, though. I gave them a D minus so far this season. I agree. D. Solid, solid D. Solid D. 
Fair enough. Um, Aston Martin, ninth in the Constructors' Championship. It's a bit of a surprise with them because this is a team a few years ago when they were still racing point, had the third best car on the grid at most circuits. So maybe, you know, third or fourth. Um, And now, fast forward to 2022, a team that really, really gambled on getting these new uh, regulations right, hit the ground running, really make some improvements in the midfield to try and challenge to lead that midfield. And it hasn't really happened yet. Some strong ambition there, as we've already mentioned, plenty of resource going and of course, the new facilities, coupled with the fact that they're going to have Fernando Alonso driving for them next season, who's spoken very highly of that ambition to replace Sebastian Vettel. But it hasn't quite re- been realised in the short term yet. So what what are your thoughts on Aston Martin this season, Mark? And is it one of those first half of the seasons where lessons have been learned and we should be more optimistic for them in the second half? I'm looking desperately for reasons to be optimistic. And this is a team that as a Canadian, I'm emotionally invested in. I I love the brand. I love the fact that Lawrence Stroll as a Canadian came into the sport and wanted to invest in it. I love that he sees Formula One being from a valuation perspective on par with NFL, where these Formula One teams, given that there's only 10 of them in the world, should be worth multiple billions of dollars. And I know people sometimes cringe at that thought. But if Formula One continues its accelerated growth and there's a pure limit of teams, and we're talking 10, 11, 12 teams maximum based on the current sporting regulations, there's no reason why these teams shouldn't be worth a ton of money. I also love the fact that he has not hesitated to spend money. And let's be clear, Aston Martin is, as an organization, is hemorrhaging cash. And that hasn't stopped him from investing in both the road car division, but especially the Formula One division. And obviously, he's done so much for what was previously a a small budget organization. And he's, like I said, invested so much money into it. Now, that all said, it's incredibly perplexing that the team has so fundamentally underperformed. And I was expecting much better things from them last year. And again, it became clear pretty early in the season that from an ROI perspective, in terms of investing in that generational car, given the fact that it was going to be scrapped at the end of 2021, it didn't make a lot of sense. So obviously last season, they pivoted pretty early in terms of investing all of their resources and people capital into the 2022 car. And for whatever reason, as you described, they just may not have hit the mark when it comes to the aerodynamic formula. I don't see a ton of reason to be optimistic. Um, I think it's good that we've settled the driver arrangements for next year, but I'm also a little bit frustrated because I look at a team and I look at Lance Stroll and Lance Stroll has almost 120 Grand Prix under his belt. It's crazy to think he's been racing full-time in Formula One now since 2017. He's five, six years deep into his career, but I see him very much like I do Aston Martin, which is a project and he's got a ton of talent and he just doesn't see for whatever reason to be able to untap that or deliver that consistently. And maybe that's the engineers, maybe that's the team, maybe that's the car. But I see this as an organization with untapped potential, unlimited potential, but I also see the same in in Lance Stroll. And I think that in any other organization and without the funding that his dad delivers, I I suspect he probably, like a Stoffel Van Dorn or Sergei Sorokin, probably would have exited Formula One many years ago. And again, as Canadian, I'm invested in him doing well, but I get a little bit frustrated because I know, unlike some of those drivers that I mentioned, he has talent. He just doesn't execute on a consistent enough basis. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And a kind of was going to be my next question, actually, what your thoughts on Lance Stroll was, because I'm quite interested to get that Canadian perspective, because over here, I mean, I like Lance Stroll. 
I, I know people that follow this podcast know that I'm, you know, I'm not the, I've not always sung his praises, but I have made sure to do so when they are certainly due and when he's earned that. And he's a driver that does have some peaks. Overall, I think he's rather solid compared to a lot of other drivers. As you said, you know, drive, pay drivers or drivers with money, whatever you want to call them. I've seen a lot worse. And for me, it's the sort of driver that as long as you have a solid number one driver running the show at that team, Lance Stroll can slot him fine in that second role, go about his business and focus on really what he needs to do to improve the team going forward. Now, of course, ultimately, will that allow him and the team to achieve their objectives of fighting for world championships and maybe winning some races? Probably not. But in the short term, that is kind of okay for now as long as they have the oven greenness and continue that investment. I mean, the ambition can't be questioned from Aston Martin, that's for sure. They're building brand new facilities that seem to be looking quite good. There was a nice uh, video that Aston Martin released recently to show the progress. Fernando Alonso has obviously sung the praises, although we can argue that Fernando is looking for an opportunity somewhere where he thinks might have a chance of winning somewhere, contrary to Alpine, where he feels that they probably won't for the rest of his F1 career. And this season so far, with Sebastian Vettel at the wheel and Lance Stroll, lately there there have been some rooms for uh, some reasons to be encouraged about the team. I mean, the last 10 races they've scored in points in eight of them. It's clearly a better race car than a qualifying car. I think that's for sure. Um, I yep. still think Aston Martin are trying to get to grips as to why that is, because if their qualifying was better, they'd have a better chance of scoring points, albeit better than just the minor ones, but points nonetheless. And despite the ambition, the car has ultimately lacked in performance, but I would credit Aston Martin to having some decent execution when they have peaked. I think a lot of teams this season, all throughout the grid, have failed to capitalise when their car is quick. Aston Martin despite everything else, are not one of them. They've actually done pretty well with what they've had, but they do need to have a better car. I must, agree, I must admit that. I just want to add something because you you touched on a topic that I think might be interesting for your audience, and that's, hey, how, how, does, how does Lance Stroll and, to a lesser extent, Nicholas Latifi resonate with Canadian fans? And obviously, people in the United States are really excited about the growth of the sport. And every time there's a Grand Prix, a couple of days later, somebody posts the, the TV ratings, and it's 1 million, 1.1 million people tuned in in the United States to watch that fan of that race, and people get excited. But in Canada, with literally 10% of the U.S. population, we do half their TV numbers. So we do exponentially better ratings than the US does, meaning that, hey, we just have possibly a, a mature, I shouldn't say mature because I think that could be taken as a sign of disrespect, but we have a older, more established base of Formula One fans in this country. Not to say that we also don't have this new injection of, of Formula One fans that have become interested in the sport because of Drive to Survive. But when I talk to people in Canada, um, obviously they're excited about Charles Leclerc, they're excited about Lewis Hamilton and George Russell and Carlos Sainz and Max Verstappen. Never, never does Lance Stroll or Nicholas Latifi come up in conversation? And obviously, when we were in Montreal a couple of months ago, you obviously saw the Canadian contingent and the Canadian flags, and you saw a lot of Nicholas Latifi Williams merch and a lot of Lance Stroll merch. But as part of the the broad general conversation about Formula One in this country, never does Lance Stroll or Nicholas Latifi surface as part of that conversation, which I think is really interesting because it's unusual that a country of 40 million people and a sport with 20 drivers that 10% 
know, the grid hails from this country. And ultimately, I think that probably just speaks to the fact that by and large, the two drivers have been relatively unsuccessful. Of course, Lance Stroll had a couple of podiums in 20 in the COVID shortened season, and he scored a podium in 2017. But in recent history, in 2021, 2022, he hasn't scored podiums. And presumably that's the reason why, because these drivers haven't given Canadian fans any reason to be excited. And there's lots of other excited drivers to talk about on the grid. But yeah, they simply don't resonate necessarily in Canada. No, and that's a very fair point. And I think it's something that hopefully over the uh, the years that come with this new wave of a new injection of younger fans, particularly from North America as well, that we might see more representation from those regions because there's plenty of quality racing drivers from all across uh, that region, but they just need to find a way to find their way into Formula One. And we've seen some good young drivers, particularly Logan Sargent is one that has been on the radar for some time at Williams. And of course, as you've mentioned already, it has been some time before... Uh, Canada or North America had anything to shout about in terms of the top level F1 driver, for example, Jacques Villeneuve. So it is quite interesting to hear from that perspective that despite the fact that you do have the representation, there's not much of a fanfare for it compared to how it would be. In, I mean, for example, Silverstone. I mean, the crowd goes crazy for the British drivers. Of course, they're all driving very, very good cars and are all up there in the upper echelons of the F1 pecking order right now. But there is always going to be room for that fanfare, no matter how good you are or what car you're driving, as long as you are the home driver. But you're right, I don't really see that as much as perhaps you'd expect to in somewhere like Canada for Stroll and Latifi. It is quite interesting. Um, I I do want to move on if I can, um, because I want to move on to Alpha Tower if that's okay. And... This is another interesting one because I think you and I would both agree, Mark, that Alpha Tauri over the last few years have really been the dark horse in that midfield. You know, there'll be days, particularly with Pierre Gasly, where he will be on the fringes of challenging potentially for the odd podium if it becomes available or really nipping at the heels of the likes of Ferrari and McLaren when they were trying to fight in the midfield. This season, Alpha Tauri have gone backwards massively. And I'm a bit concerned as to how they're going to get out of this hole that they're in, because they've really struggled to adapt to these new regulations when a lot of people expected them to be quite good. They famously went against what Red Bull were doing, which is a surprise to many, but that's what they wanted to do. And, you know, they haven't scored... I think they've only finished in the top 10 half a dozen times this season, and they haven't scored a point in the last five races. So, you know, the execution's not been good from the team. The reliability's not been good. The driving has been a bit erratic from both of their drivers by comparison. It, It... it reeks very much of a season where they must do better in the second half. Um, how would you have assessed AlphaTauri so far? Uh, very much disappointing. I think this was a team that I was very optimistically looking forward to. Uh, obviously, last year was a, a strong year for them. Uh, they scored a ton of constructors points. There was reasons to be excited about Yuki as as a rookie. He was fast. He was untamed. But I think that's something that you can coach and you can develop. And obviously, we got some direct line of sight into what the process of uh, a maturing Yuki Sonoda looked like through the Drive to Survive series. There were some really interesting insights that we learned there. But Pierre Gasly is very much an accomplished driver now. He's won a Formula One Grand Prix. But you're right. You look at the you look at the last six five six races here, and they have one points finish, and they have a cluster of uh, retirements that this is a team that certainly isn't 
delivering. And if you talk about the power unit, I think anyone on the grid would be incredibly excited to be able to partner with Honda and that exceptionally strong power unit that obviously propelled Red Bull to a driver's championship last year. And they have that. But you're right. It's interesting that their philosophy in terms of how they develop the car diverged so significantly from Red Bull. And of course, needs to because these teams need to exist and operate with some degree of autonomy and you can't share or sell on your chassis. But ultimately, I think I'm pretty disappointed. And then obviously, in the past few days, Helmut Marko has started making some comments that I think are probably going to complicate the situation a little bit in terms of team dynamics and, and culture by making comments about the fact that, hey, look, you know what, maybe it's time for, Ga and I paraphrase here, now maybe it's time for Gasly to to move on after 2023 and Yuki's already just as fast at, in race trim. But I think this is a team that's been disappointing this season because I just thought with that power unit and a fresh start with the new regulations, there was no reason why this team couldn't be an upper midfield team. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I'm just looking through the results this season and fifth for Gasly and Baku was the best result. And of course, that was a bit of a crazy race for different reasons, but they've really struggled to get on the fringes of the points this season and where they probably feel they should be fighting the likes of McLaren and Alpine, for example, they find themselves straggling against the likes of Aston Martin um, and, and Williams and amongst others. And it's not really been good enough for them. So Hopefully for them, the second half of the season would be better, but their upgrade packages have not exactly been encouraging either. So I'm probably going to give them a D so far this season. I'm aware I didn't give one for Aston Martin, which so that would have been a D minus as well. Um, what rating would you give for Alpha Tauri? And of course, Aston Martin as well. So so Aston Martin for me is an F. And, and I, I think I have to look at these teams in isolation of the other teams because they all operate with different budgets and different resources and different infrastructure. And if you look at the Aston Martin team, they have every conceivable resource and asset necessary to build a successful and capable Formula One car. And they simply haven't done that. So I think for Aston Martin, when you consider the amount of money that their owners poured into that team, I think their results deserve an F. In terms of Alpha Tauri, obviously, relative to Aston Martin, they they work with some, some semi-degree of autonomy, but they also do have access to rich resources. I would say a D minus as well, that that's where I expect, I expected them to be an upper midfield team. Obviously last year they finished sixth in the championship. They finished seventh the year before the year that Gasly won that race at Monza. I, I just, I'm disappointed and I would agree a D minus is probably appropriate for that team. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good shout. Quite an uh, interesting one because uh, I thought I was a bit uh, very critical of them, but you've gone right for the jugular. I absolutely love that. And uh, no prisoners <laughs> whatsoever. So uh, no, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing your other uh, grades for some of the other teams. But let's move on from a team that's had plenty of resource, almost unlimited resourcing in Aston Martin to a team that has very little resourcing in the house, currently seventh in the championship. Um, they, they sacrificed 2021 to focus on 2022. And I think by and large, that was a relative success for them. I think the car that they turned up uh, after testing was a very good one, one that was much more refined than a lot of its competitors, um, to the shock of many. And uh, it led to Kevin Magnussen in his first race back in F1, getting in the top five in Bahrain. And there have been quite a few races this season where Haas's car has been very, very good. Now, of course, a lot of people would say that with the upgrades being very aggressive this season, it does create potential for teams to lose sight on how to set up their cars properly or how to get the most out of their car. Where Haas have had the advantage 
of being able to refine their setups and refine their knowledge of their car to a point where they can get the absolute maximum out of the package they have, which has proven to be a relatively good one. However, there is a sign of concern that given that Hungary is was the only planned development package that they're planning to introduce this season, and the fact that Mick Schumacher hasn't even driven that upgraded hash yet, um, there is a worry that the season they may start to fade away and that their biggest opportunities to score points were earlier in the season. And to some degree, they should more be closer to Alfa Romeo than Alfa Tauri. And the big reason for that is, I was just uh, making a list, I think it was in Jeddah, Miami, Spain, Canada, through reliability issues or driver errors or strategic blunders, um, not that there have been many to their credit, they have thrown away quite a few points. So I'm a little bit on the fence at the moment with Haas this season. There have been some good points, but there have been some missed opportunities, which I'm not sure they're going to get many of in the second half of the season. So quick summary aside, how would you assess Haas so far this season, Mark? So this is the obviously the youngest team in Formula One. And I, I just I want to walk this back a little bit. So they entered Formula One in 2016. So 2016, their inaugural season, let's call it their their expansion season. They finished eighth. They finished eighth in 2017. In 2018, they had that shock fifth place finish. 2019, they finished ninth. 2020, which was obviously the COVID year, they finished ninth. 2021, like you said, they rode off the season. They invested nothing in that car. And truthfully, they invested nothing in the car the year prior. So really 2020. 2020 and 2021 were both total write-offs for that team. But 2020, they finished ninth. 2021, they finished 10th. They are rocking the, the Ferrari power unit, which is a really capable unit to build a car around. I just, I, I think my question when it comes to Haas is similar to my question about Williams, which is unlike Williams, they seem to have a relatively decent package capable of scoring points, presumably every single race weekend. But I just, I don't know what Gene Haas's end game or ultimate motivation or intent is for this team. They've got, for the first time perhaps in the history of this team, a really capable package. Kevin Magnuson is obviously the right fit for this team. He's already got five points finishes this year and probably more if not for the fact that he has a cluster of retirements and DNFs. But I just don't know what Gene Haas's long-term objective is with this team because what we do know and obviously we learn this through drive to survive and some of gunther steiner's media quotes is they're still investing no money in this team that there may be 135 i guess it's bumped up to 143 but there may be 143 million dollar cost cap Haas is spending nowhere near this. So while we get a little bit excited and we look for reasons to be optimistic, obviously a cluster of points finishes and Mick's been in the points a couple of times now and maybe secured his seat for the future, at least in Formula One, if not for this team. But at the same time, if Gene Haas isn't willing to spend at least to the cost cap, what is the potential of this team? And is the potential capped in itself because he's not willing to invest in this organization? So at the same time, I'm happy to see they've made some development. I'm, I'm happy to see that they have a car that can score points consistently. I just don't see any reason to be optimistic beyond that because I'm not certain that their owner is willing to spend to make this car a challenger. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, I mean, I've spoken to a few people on this in the past, and I remember speaking to the uh, US-based journalist Adam Stern, and I don't want to quote him word for word on this, but um, from what I understood when I spoke to him about this, he was under the impression that Gene Haas is, it's more about the brand Haas, and obviously the, 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 right. you know, the automotive parts and everything that comes from the Haas business in Formula One. It's not necessarily one that's directed towards trying to win, in Formula One. It's one to look relatively competitive, relatively strong, but under a specific budget. 
and it, and it shows because I think we can all agree that despite the facilities that Haas have and their heritage and other uh, US-based motorsports, well, obviously it's a bit richer than it is in Formula One with all due respect, it's a team that has got a very good group of individuals working and producing some quality cars at, uh, compared to some of the totally others in the Totally agree. But then, totally agree. But obviously they don't have the resources to try and push that uh, going forward. And I feel that that's a big stumbling block for them, but one that I don't think Gene Haas ultimately sees. I mean, if someone else can pick up the tab as he tried to achieve with Rich Energy a few years ago, then great. But obviously, in terms of if they're going to win with Gene Haas, I can't see him bankrolling that, quite frankly. You make... You make a really great point, which is, hey, I'm willing to spend money to make this car a contender. I'm just not willing to spend my money. So if somebody wants to come along and bankroll this operation and be a title sponsor, that's great. I'll turn that money around and spend it on the development of the car, but he's not willing to spend his money. And I think that's a really unfortunate situation and look for Formula One, because as I mentioned earlier, there are 10 Formula One teams on the planet, 10 that is it. And really, there's nine when you consider the fact that unfortunately, two of them share the same parent ownership in Red Bull. But it's really a shame that there's only 10 teams and one of them can never be a title contender because its owner imposes these artificial spending caps. Because for him, this is a marketing exercise and he doesn't necessarily need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars building out a sparkling factory to get what he wants out of this organization, which is to have Haas Automotive splashed around circuits globally. But I just think it's unfortunate. And I think if Formula One is looking to add an 11th or a 12th team, they need to be absolutely confident. And I think this is what Christian Horner and Total Wolf have spoke to, that if a team wants to come in and they want to be competitive, which should be a prerequisite for joining Formula One, they need to be able to show they have a billion dollars in their pocket to build out a world-class facility and do it the right way. Because in this case, it's not been a great look that this team came in. They paid virtually nothing to enter the sport. They've contributed nothing to Formula One. And now that they seem to have a good group of people and a capable car, it seems to have hit this artificial ceiling because the owner just doesn't want to spend any more money. Yeah, absolutely. And it puts so much pressure on those existing there to get the absolute maximum out of what they have or they will just fall to the very back. So despite their successes so far this season, I must say that there have been opportunities missed. Um, It's a good car, but I'm just worried they're going to fall a bit further back. And so for that reason, I have to give them a C- for the season so far. And and I should mention, guys, for people wondering how I'm actually scaling when it comes to grading, um, it's mostly just assessing team execution, driver performance, reliability, and the overall performance of the car relative to its competition so far. So of course, Mark's definitely, by the sounds of it, grading on a different scale than I am. So just to sort of put a contrast so people don't confuse if we're uh, if they think we're grading on the same scale. I think that's probably fair, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think yeah. that's fair. And, and I'm going to complicate this even farther because I know we want to get through some of these other teams. But I think for Haas, I think from an ownership perspective, I, I give Gene a, a D. Obviously, we've seen worse owners in sports in the past. Obviously, the previous owner of Force India was not an ideal owner for this sport, naturally. But I think Gene Haas, I give him a D because I think this team could be so much more if he chose to invest in it. But in terms of the organization, like you said, the drivers, the factory, the leadership, all of those components together, I think that's... A solid C that they've delivered and they're punching above their weight considering the financial resources that they're given to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I'm sure there are plenty of people that follow other sports and other franchises that will probably have a few things to say quite similar about the owners of their respective franchises. But of course, that's neither here nor there. We'll, we'll press on Owen to time. Um, Alfa Romeo, quite an interesting one with them because sixth in the Constructors' Championship, 
I've been quietly impressed by Alfa Romeo. I think they needed a very good start this season with the new regulations. And I think we can all agree that they managed that. It was a very decent car from the get-go. It was capable of a top 10 finish at pretty much almost every race this season. And it's one of the only teams, if not the only team, that has managed to meet the minimum weight limit. I mean, we had that controversy at the start of the season where teams were even asking the FIA to a point where they very almost considered doing it, raising the weight limit just so that they would not be too far overweight. So fair play for Alfa Romeo on managing that from the get-go. Um, Bottas, been revitalised this year. Lots of some good, solid performances. Zhou Guan Yu has obviously impressed pretty well in his rookie season, all things considered. And, you know, early start of the season, they've got six points finishes in the first seven races, but they have started to slowly fall away a little bit like Haas have. And um, I think Canada was their last points finish. I think they finished 7th and 8th respectively in that race. And they have had quite a few reliability issues, which has resulted in eight retirements this season, which I think is more than anybody else so far. So it's a kind of a, one of those, again, similar to Haas, where it's been a good start, but they do need to find something to be better. Although, unlike Haas, I'm expecting Alpha to be have the resources to try and sustain their performance so far, where they could very well finish in the top six this season. Absolutely. The other consideration to talk about when we look at this team, and, and I, I have to be cautious when I say Alfa Romeo because it's really self uh, or Sauber. Yeah. Alfa Romeo is really just kind of a title sponsor for mm. this team is obviously, and I'm sure you, you've spoken about this on your show, is that in all likelihood, this is going to be the target acquisition for Audi and that this will eventually become an Audi works team. So the current engine supply deal with Ferrari will probably stay in place until 2025. And then, of course, they'll switch over to an Audi branded and Audi. Audi developed power unit for 2026, but it's going to be really interesting to see how this team operates when they suddenly get that cash infusion from Audi. And it's also going to be really interesting to see how this team is ultimately branded for the next couple of years leading into 2026, because there's certainly no way that Audi would want or would be capable of developing a power unit based on the current regulations for just a couple of years, only to turn it over and develop something entirely new for 2026. But I think it's going to be interesting. But that said, if I was buying a Formula one team today. I would want to buy Williams just because of that nostalgia that you spoke to a little bit earlier. But in terms of building a team that seems to have a really solid base and seems to be staffed with some really quality individuals and has a really great capable driver pairing, I think you could do a lot worse than Alfa Romeo. And I think a top six finish for this team should have been a slam dunk. It should have been a lock. But like you said, they haven't scored points since Canada. They had the double retirement in the UK. Um, and then of course, they've had a couple of really dicey finishes both in France and Hungary, but I think this is a team that should finish in the top six unless something catastrophic happens in the back half of the season. But I think the interesting storyline here for me is going to be more about the Audi, the impending Audi purchase of this organization. Yeah, I very much agree with that. And that's certainly one worth keeping an eye on because I think it's inevitable that some of those entities and Porsche as well, you know, both part of the VW group will be quite interesting to see what happens with that. Although I think we all know what's going to be happening there with Red Bull uh, beyond 2025. That should be quite a good partnership uh, to see then as well. Um, so for me, I'm going to give Alfa Romeo a C purely because they've looked decent so far. I think they've been quite good relative to their competition, quite re well, quite re reliable in terms of performance and in not necessarily reliability, um, but it's not as quick as it was. So I have scaled them down just a little bit. 
I think I think that's fair, and I think I would probably be a little bit more generous. I think probably a C plus or a B minus. I don't know if those are grades that they sign in schools today, but I, I think a B minus would probably be fair for for this team. And it may have been a little bit higher, but like you said, they've really struggled to complete races and score points since Canada. Yeah, I, I think for me, what's knocked them down is just the reliability. But again, of course, that may not necessarily be their fault. That might be more on Ferrari, and given the issues that the Ferrari engines have had. Right. Great point. It's one that is harsh, perhaps, you know, to be fair, actually, you know what, with that in mind, I might give him a C plus actually, because I think it's fair. Ferrari have been not the root cause of all their problems, but there certainly have been issues inherent from these Ferrari power units this season. Um, and of course, they enjoy the benefits of the performance and speed. But of course, the reliability, you have to finish in order to finish first, you have to finish. So uh, I kind of paraphrase that I can butchered it all together, but never mind. Um, McLaren. I think we'll have a lot to say about McLaren uh, on this segment, Mark. Now, McLaren fifth overall. Um, for them, it's they were really hindered at the start of the season. They had some break issues in pre-season in Bahrain, and it's something that followed them in that first race as well. And of course, the car has been quite sensitive to hot conditions and also slow speed corners. But when it has been operating well, it's definitely been one of the forefront teams in the midfield. More than that, perhaps nipping at the heels of some of the leading teams when they're underachieving a little bit, especially in qualifying. Um, Lando Norris, of course, getting a podium at Imola and really challenging in qualifying most recently at the French Grand Prix and at Hungary as well. So it's uh, quite a, a decent season for McLaren. I think their target, considering their limited infrastructure, which of course is only temporary, of course their new simulator and wind tunnel should be active soon. So... They may not be affected by that too much more, but I think for them, consolidating fourth would have been a realistic target. So to see Alpine just ahead of them at the moment, they won't be happy about that. They they shouldn't be happy about that, to be totally honest. It's, it's such an interesting story when we talk about McLaren that this is a team that now in the last 24 months seems to be an absolute magnet for corporate sponsors. I, I feel like I can't go on Twitter without seeing them announcing a new corporate sponsor or a new shoe provider or a new partnership for merchandise that this team obviously seems to resonate really well, particularly with the American audience. But it was really only two years that this team was on the financial brink. Their road car division is still an absolute nightmare. Um, and they were hemorrhaging cash on the, on the racing side. And of course, we all know that the McLaren technology center was actually sold off in a leaseback arrangement and that they relied heavily on a massive infusion of capital from Bahraini banks a couple of years ago to help keep this organization afloat. Now, last year, the year before, we saw really some reasons to be excited about this team. But my fear is that in the back half of the season, this team is going to potentially be derailed off the track just because of all the things that seem to be happening in the periphery of this team. And obviously, since the summer break, we've heard nothing but conversations about Oscar Piastri. We've heard nothing about the future, nothing but things about the future of Daniel Ricardo. And unless those things are settled soon, they could prove to be a major distraction because obviously if they're not settled, if they're not established, poor Lando Norris is going to be asked about them endlessly. Zach Brown, and he's really at fault for the situation, will be asked about them endlessly. And ultimately anything they do on the track is going to be overshadowed by the things that are happening off the track. But 
to me that this is one of the the biggest disappointments in in Formula One. The fact that not the fact that they're competing for fourth in the championship, but the fact that they're 200 points behind Mercedes, who themselves would probably argue have had a very disappointing championship, although obviously they've strung together some really great races in the second half of the first half of the season. But for me, Mercedes is probably sorry, McLaren Mercedes has probably scored a solid D and that factors in Daniel's challenges, everything that's happening off the track and all the noise and the distractions that are being generated, but also just the fact that the car that they brought at the beginning of the season wasn't what I think any of us expected them to bring. Now, in the last three races, they have five points finishes, three finishes in the top seven. So there's reasons to be optimistic, but I think as a holistic package, I think this season's been a solid disappointment for McLaren. I give them a solid D. Yeah, and and I don't think that's that's too unfair to be honest to give them a a grade like that. Really, I think they expected a bit more. They have been playing catch up. Um, as, as I said, relative to where I think that they should be targeting, they're definitely behind on that. Um, but it will be interesting to see how they go on the second half of the season. Um, just a quick note on Lando Norris before we move on. Um, he's obviously very highly rated in the UK, and you know, for for a lot of people, they do feel that he's the next big star in British motorsport if he's not already there. You know, he sells more merch than anyone else at Silverstone, which is quite some feat when you're up against the likes of Sir Lewis Hamilton and George Russell, obviously, um, you know, no need to be going on about their credentials. They speak for themselves. But um, how essential is, um, well, I suppose for both sides, for McLaren and Lando Norris, how essential is it that both of them can really achieve uh, the potential that is there? Because McLaren need to give Norris a car that's capable of fighting at the front. And at the moment, Norris just keeps needs to keep doing what he's doing in order to preserve that when eventually he gets there. I just want to add something real quick because I spoke earlier about the the popularity or the general awareness of our Canadian drivers in Canada, Nicholas Latifi and Lance Stroll, and even amongst the F1 community, there's only vague awareness. Lando Norris is, is a rock star in this country. People absolutely love Lando. He's one of their their favorite drivers, and that's obviously because he's charismatic, he's personable, um, he, he operates social media really effectively, he's vulnerable, he opens up about mental health. There's a lot of reasons to like this young kid. I think the fear and the concern that this organization should have is they have a blue chip talent in in Lando Norris. And the fear, of course, is that if you can't pair him with a really great car, do you create a situation where potentially he's looking for an exit? And I think at this point, that's probably an extreme thing to speculate about. But you have to wonder about his commitment to this team if they can't provide a great car. Now, obviously, last year he finished sixth in the championship in 2021 in a bit of an odd year. Uh, he had that second place finish in Italy. He had three other podium finishes. It was a great year. So I think he's still invested in this team. And I think he's probably willing to recognize that this is something of a transitionary year. But I think he's going to want to see more out of the car in the back half for the season. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think for McLaren, yeah, as, as I mentioned already, it's, it's plenty of work to be getting on with. Alpine. Um, it's again, I think Alpine, I think overall, I think they've been pretty good. I think they've been one of the best performers this season compared to what they've got. Four fastest car, fourth in the championship. Uh, but it's been at the front of the midfield pretty much almost every race so far. They've had a good uh, development package throughout this season, a good development plan. Uh, they addressed they addressed the race pace issue that they had at the start of the year. I think that was quite important. Um, Alonso and Ocon have racked up uh, 19 points finishes this season, I believe. But although they haven't finished higher than fifth, and um, it must be said that uh, the, the engine has improved immensely to the point where they're probably only given a slight amount away 
to the ultimate pace of the Legion engine provider. So if it weren't for some reliability issues and better race management between the drivers on occasion, I think Alpine would be comfortably in fourth in this Constructors' Championship, not too worried about McLaren. So I think it's been a very good start for them. There is a little bit of room for improvement, but I think Alpine have been one of the more impressive teams this season. One of the things that I find so remarkable about this story is that they seem to have, obviously with time, they've developed an incredibly capable power unit package. And they've done this despite the fact that they have no customer teams. And people at home might be wondering, like, why is that relevant? But the reality is the more teams you supply engines to and the more cars you have running your power units, the more data and telemetry you collect from those cars. And that's information that you can compile and use to develop and improve the engine. Of course, the engine formula is frozen now. But given the fact that really they haven't supplied engines to anyone in several years now, Ever since that messy divorce with with Red Bull and that short term agreement with with uh, with McLaren, they've kind of done this on their own. So it's pretty remarkable that a team that produces their own power unit and doesn't share or sell to anybody else has put together such a great package. But to me, in some ways, some ways this team has been a good news story this year. And like you said, they're sitting at ninety nine points. They're fourth in the championship. I, I think that this is something that they would be very happy to accomplish. And of course, Mercedes is going to come, or sort of McLaren Mercedes is going to come at the hard in the back half of the season. But at the same time, this is a team that has now been dogged for weeks with all of the off-track issues related to the fact that Fernando left the organization um, reportedly without telling them that that the Alpine leadership only found out about his departure at Aston Martin when Aston Martin released the press release. And of course, they then subsequently announced that Oscar Piastri was going to be racing for the next year. And he then came out on social media and denied that. So I am a huge fan of Otmar. I think his departure from Aston Martin was very unfortunate. I think he did a great job with Racing Point and Force India before that. I thought he was going to be a great fit for this team. But now I'm very curious as to what is happening at this organization that Fernando felt the need to exit in the way that he did. And the fact that they would then subsequently announce a young driver to a seat with this team in 2023, who then immediately announced on Twitter that he was not going to be racing for this team. It has not been a good look for this team. So despite all the positive things that have been happening on the track, there's reasons to be pessimistic or negative about the fortunes of this team moving forward simply because of all of the messy off-track stuff. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think, um, you know, when judging them on track, you can really sing their praises, but off the track, it's been an absolute calamity. You couldn't imagine two more polar opposites between. Um, but but what does that say? You know, I mean, in, in your opinion, Mark, um, not so much with Piastri, but with Alonso. Obviously, Alonso's only got a few more years in his career, as brilliant as he is, and as much as he wants to sustain that longevity of being a Formula One driver, we have to accept facts that time catches up on all of us. But the fact that he's made such a huge decision to leave a team that at the moment is on the up in, in Alpine to go to another team, which is very much ambitious, but at the moment is an unknown entity in Aston Martin and where they're going to be in Alonso's career lifetime. What does that say to Alpine in terms of what they can offer a driver that may have aspirations similar to that of Alonso to win races and world championships in the future? I don't fault Alpine for not committing to Fernando Alonso. I think ultimately for Fernando, this was a 
personal business decision that this was less about finding a competitive race car, but he recognizes that he's on the wrong side of 40. And if there's a team willing to offer him a multi-year deal with significantly more money, knowing that this could potentially be his last payday, right? Like this could potentially be his last Formula One contract that if there's a team that's willing to offer you more terms, so more years and significantly more money, which is reportedly what Lance Stroll or Lawrence Stroll was willing to do, you have to take that deal. And I think for him, it's not like he was going to be contending for a world championship with Alpine Renault next year. They're probably going to be a midfield team once again, and he might have the opportunity to score a couple of podiums. But I think given the fact that he's on the wrong side of 40, like I mentioned, and there's a team willing to offer him a longer term deal with significantly more money, it just made more sense for him to take that deal. Now, why he exited in the way that he did and that Alpine only found out when the Aston Martin press release came out, I don't know. Maybe he took it very personally when Alpine weren't willing to offer him the same term and the same money. But I think Alpine Renault were probably smart by not willing to commit to a long-term three-year deal at $15 million a year or whatever his deal ultimately with, with Aston Martin was. So I don't fault Alpine for for not making that commitment. Cause I think it's risky for a driver of his age. I just, I'm very curious as to why he exited the way he did. Yeah, very much so. And I think you've made a really, a lot of good points there that, you know, from a business decision and preserving that longevity, you know, to give him what he wants to do. I think it, I think it makes absolute sense for Alonso to do that. And, and it sounds crazy, but uh, you know, here we are, this is, this is formula one for you. You have to be in the right seat at the right time. And to be fair to Alonso, after he won what two world championships, he's never really been in that position. So uh, we'll have to uh, wait and see how that goes. But I'm going to give Alpine a solid B um, grade for this season. I think they've been very, very good, but just not quite perfect, but definitely room for improvement. How about you? I, I would agree. I think if you look at the race side of the business, racing operations, I think if you look at that in isolation of all this messiness, or as you described it, the calamity that has been the off track action. I think if you look at the racing organization in isolation of everything else, I think a solid B is fair. Um, I, I, I think it becomes much muddier when you consider the holistic thing, but I think a solid B is a very, very fair score for this organization and this racing team. Oh yeah. If you judge all the off track stuff in isolation as well, you don't just get an F, you get a massive L. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, Mercedes now, again, this is, um, I've loved this about Mercedes this season because they found themselves in a position where they've been really struggling, you know, not to mention the porpoising issues, uh, the fact that their car, it was a very unique concept. They went with the Hyde pod concept, um, patented by Bryson Sullivan, originally introduced. So uh, for those interested, and it's one of those that Mercedes, as I said, they've been, it's been quite unique for Mercedes. They've been in a position where they've had to start on the back foot. They've spent a lot of time developing, chopping away bit by bit. Some weeks not really understanding if what they're doing is working, other weeks second guessing. But one thing you can rely on this season from Mercedes is the reliability has been superb. And this is something that they struggled with last season. Ultimately, almost derailed their championship, but they managed to find a way around it because of how good they were. And the drivers have been phenomenal. You know, Sir Lewis Hamilton had a bit of a slow start. He was doing a little bit of testing whilst he was racing with Mercedes this season. But his form has been superb recently. George Russell has been incredibly consistent this season. I think one one result outside the top five this season, and that was that crash at Silverstone that he had on that one. Other than that, he's been phenomenal. So for Mercedes, I'm going to give my grade early. I think it's a solid B, purely because the car is getting better and better and better. Not quite where they'd want it to be. And they're certainly overachieving compared to where they probably should be. And I think that has to be taken into account. So 
Um, what has your assessment of Mercedes been so far this season? You, you you did a really good job of summarizing this. And just kind of as a point of reference, they sit 30 points behind Ferrari. I think their ambition for the back half of the season is going to be to pass Ferrari and finish second in the championship. One of the things that's probably most startling is that Mercedes has scored 11 podiums this year. Ferrari themselves, who sits ahead of them in the championship, has also scored only 11 podiums this year. It's remarkable that, that that is half of those Ferrari podiums came in the first three races of the season. Of course, since then, they've been significantly uh, derailed by strategy and reliability and some really ugly driver era. But in terms of, of Mercedes, I think they've really been blessed by a very resilient, very capable and very positive George Russell that when things were going really poorly for this team in the first sector of the first half of the season, George Russell just kept going out and scoring top five finish after top five finish after top five finish, which really gave them the opportunity to accumulate a lot of data, but also to continue scoring constructors points, which puts them into a really good position heading into spa. And of course, I think if you look at the beginning of the season, Lewis psychologically wasn't in a great place. I think there was still some residue from the fallout from the previous championship. And I think ultimately he was also just really frustrated with the car that he wasn't able to come into 2022 and immediately contend with Max Verstappen to go after title number eight. But if you look really now at the last five or six Grand Prix, Lewis is an entirely different psychological space. He's exuberant. He's happy. He's excited. He's complimentary of his team. And George Russell's been in the same head space all season, which is he's in a really, really great place. And to your point as well, Mercedes came in, they really struggled at the beginning of the season, uh, bouncing and porpoising, which really are two separate things that just seem to be somewhat related. They've resolved. Um, and like George Russell said in the UK during the, the pre-race, he was talking about the fact that, look, we, we didn't understand this car, so we couldn't upgrade it. We couldn't improve the car because we didn't know what we were working with. And somewhere around Azerbaijan, Canada, the UK, all of a sudden it clicked. We understand the car. We understand what's happening. Now we can fix the porpoising and now we can start building on this car. So for me, their development really started somewhere around Canada, Great Britain, and all of the points that they scored before that were just gravy because they had no business scoring those podiums. But I'm hugely optimistic for what this team is going to look like in the second half of the season. And I have every reason to think that they will fight Ferrari right down to the final race for second in the Constructors' Championship. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And um, obviously, since Spain, Mercedes have... Only Red Bull have scored more points than Mercedes since the Spanish Grand Prix. And I think it testifies the improvements that they've made. And it's a, it's a great example as to how, you know, that's the thing... That's Sorry, I should say, that's the most impressive thing about Mercedes this year is that despite these setbacks that they have had, they've absolutely optimised every single opportunity that they've had. And it just really is encouraging for when they do get into a position where their car is able to compete with Red Bull and Ferrari week in, week out. And given what we saw in Hungary, that may be sooner than rather than later, it certainly does bode well for them. So I think a solid B for Mercedes. Um, Mark, what grade would you give Mercedes for the first half? Agreed. B, I can't go higher simply because of the because of the huge amount of success they've had since 2014, really even 2013, they were winning races as we wrapped up the V8 era. Uh, but I would give them a solid B. And that's really predicated on the fact that they've 
developed this car significantly since Azerbaijan, Canada, Great Britain. Prior to that, it probably would have been a C or a C minus, but they continue to improve this car. When you and I sit down and we do a postseason wrap up on the Scuderia F1 podcast in a couple of months, hopefully we get them to a point or hopefully they get to a point where, hey, we're talking about it being a B plus or an A minus because they were able to uh, sneak past Ferrari in the pack half of the season. Yeah, and as regrettably as it will be for me to talk about that, that sounds like an invite to me, guys. So I've certainly made it uh, across yeah. the pond. I've certainly made <laughs> a new friend. You're welcome to come on. I look forward to it. <laughs> but um, of, of course, we, we should move on to Ferrari and of course, quite a solemn note for them. But um, I'm going to go right off the bat. I'm going to give Ferrari a C plus and I feel like I'm being generous for them in this regard. And the only reason why I'm giving them a C plus and not a lower grade is because the car is phenomenal. Take the engine and even the engine to a degree reliability has not been that great but it's really it's a really powerful engine the f175 is is has been a brilliant car so far um it's won four races eight poles arguably has been the fastest car on average this season especially in terms of you know race pace and qualifying um but you know and given ferrari failed to win over the last two win a race over the last two seasons mark being second in the constructors championship and a, being a regular front runner again would seem like a very good season for them but as it stands they've thrown away wins at spain monaco baku technically almost won at britain but it was just a different driver that won it instead france and hungary owned to a combination as we've already mentioned reliability issues strategy blunders and driver errors ultimately the race team has let down the design team this season in in all aspects. So, and they should be leading both world championships. As it stands, they're a long way off in both of them, and they're only thirty points ahead of Mercedes. And the only reason why they're there is because the car is so far. The F one seventy five has proven to have been a better car than the W thirteen. So, I mean, I pretty much give a damning summary summary of Ferrari this season. Um, what are your thoughts on their first half? Yeah, I very much agree with you. Unfortunately, I think the F-175 is going to go down as one of these all-time great cars that was done a disservice by race operations and the drivers to to a somewhat lesser extent because obviously Carlos and, and Charles Leclerc have had their moments this year and and managed to bin the cars at, in a, in a I would say, unideal or non-ideal moments. But, but I agree that the car itself and the power unit is phenomenal. And obviously, if you flash back to 2019, and I'm sure most of your listeners are aware, they were looking to possibly run away with the championship in the back half of that season. All of a sudden, all of their power seemed to vanish. And as we discovered later, potentially, presumably, there were some shenanigans happening with the fuel flow meter in that car and how it was registering the amount of fuel that was being pushed into the internal combustion engine. And all of a sudden, they effectively had to start from square one because they lost as much as 50 horsepower this year when you look at the first couple of races i think interest in formula one absolutely peaked because we came off of a championship in 2021 that went absolutely right down to the wire we were introducing new regulations and people were incredibly excited about what this season could hold and i don't know about your show but no team moves the needle like ferrari Lewis Hamilton can win. Max Verstappen can win. We get good numbers on our podcast. If Charles Leclerc wins, our numbers go through the roof. So we were excited just because of what we knew that this was going to do for our show and our listener engagement. And the fact that despite the fact that they have potentially the best aerodynamic formula and potentially the best power unit on the grid, they've simply been unable to deliver has been unacceptable. And I agree that I think this team holistically is a C because you have to consider the fact that the drivers haven't been 
been perfect. They've been good, but they've been far from perfect. Strategy has been an absolute, I love your word, calamity. Strategy has been a total calamity for this organization. And then they've had a couple of reliability issues on top of that. So this is a team that should be running away with both the constructors and the World Drivers Championship. And unfortunately, they've gifted both of them to Red Bull. And there's no reason to think that Red Bull will relinquish either of them on the back half of the season. No, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with more on that one, Mark. I mean, just a quick note on obviously the future at Ferrari for Matty Bonotto. And of course, we should mention that a lot of what Ferrari have achieved over the last few years has been part to what he has done leading from the front in his tenure at Ferrari compared to others. He has brought them back to a position where they are competing for a world championship. Although, you know, at the start of the season, that was a lot more realistic. So going forward, some people have mentioned Ferrari should remove him from the helm at the team, bring someone else in to fix the strategy issues that they've been having. I'm not necessarily one that subscribes to that opinion. I think Ferrari need to do something that's not Ferrari-like and back Bonotto, give him a bit more time to address these issues, perhaps come across in interviews where he actually starts to accept some blame or acknowledge where these issues are rather than just say that they're not happening because they are happening and denying them is not going to do you any favours. Um, what are your thoughts on that for Ferrari? What do you think that they should do going forward to kind of resolve these strategy blunders? I was having the same conversation with TSN's Tim Haraney a couple of weeks ago, and I was arguing that, hey, maybe organizationally, they need to look to make a significant change, obviously, in the case of Mattia Bonato. And Tim's point was, who are you going to replace him with? And the only name I could come up with was Ross Braun. And I don't think Ross Braun's looking to regain the reins of a Formula One team at this point in his career. So I think he's probably still the right person for this job. But I think to your point, one of the things that's been really frustrating for me is the lack of humility in terms of owning up to some of these issues. It's not like he necessarily deflects. He just doesn't seem to acknowledge that these things are happening and they're so obvious to everybody. And ultimately, he he captains that ship. And I think he needs to accept and absorb some of that. That blame so it doesn't fall on other members of his team. Um, and ultimately, it probably should. But as the leader, ultimately, you're the one that put all of those people in those places and you need to own responsibility. So I agree with your assessment that some degree of humility needs to be demonstrated in these interviews because it doesn't come across effectively otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's so important. Perhaps you need to take a page out of Toto Wolf and Christian Horner's book, for example, because when they have these issues, they tend to blame the problem. It's not necessarily a person or a team that's at fault. They look to just address the problem and say, OK, we just need to improve that. Things will get better. Denying it or not having the humility, as you said, to address these issues and just pretend that they're not happening isn't going to win Ferrari any championships. And ultimately, Ferrari can look at this season and say, well, we produced a fantastic car. The engine was good, albeit unreliable, but hopefully over time that will improve. Um, the fact is that they lost this championship or both championships uh, because they threw away too many races where they should have won. And that is not good enough for Ferrari. You can, know, you can try and put any caveats you want to it unless they win it's not a successful season especially when you have a car that is capable of it right now and arguably a driver pairing that are may not be the finalized or the uh, the real deal yet but they're certainly showing that they're certainly going to be up there for years to come completely agree and i have nothing to add <laughs> brilliant let's move on to red bull to final finalize this off i'm aware of time so hopefully we'll go through this one fairly rapidly as rapidly as red bull have been this season top of the constructors championship top of the drivers championship with max verstappen despite a difficult start with reliability issues red bull really recovered incredibly well 
after the Australian Grand Prix, where they looked like at one point Max Verstappen saying by his own admission he'd need 45 races to catch Charles Leclerc in the championship. As it stood, it only took him a few, quite emphatically. They're going into the summer break now with a very healthy lead in both championships. And as you mentioned already, Mark, they only need to be sensible and just manage their races efficiently to try and cons- to consolidate them in record time right now. And I think a big key of that has been uh, strong strategy calls more than anything else. Um, I think it was their uh, head of race uh, strategies or lead race strategist, I uh, can't quite remember the position, Hannah Schmitz, who you know was interviewed quite recently and talking about the, what Red Bull do. They sort of react in the moment, they do the calculations, don't rely too much on the data when things tend to change and add a little bit of feel to it. I think Hungary was a great example where Max was saying uh, the hard tyres weren't working well for him on the run to the grid, so they sort of reacted to that and said, right, we're not going to run the harder tyre. And then you had Ferrari later on, throwing the harder tyre onto Leclerc, knowing that it wasn't going to work, or at least by their own admission, they just didn't have the data, which was ludicrous. And I think that's been a prime example as to how Red Bull have been so efficient in the moment, forcing the strategy, making the right calls when it counts, and relying on a driver as good as Max Verstappen to execute them, which he has done to aplomb this season. And I think that culminates in Red Bull dominating both championships as they have done. And I don't see any reason why they don't deserve to do that right now. You mentioned that uh, at the beginning of the season, they struggled with some reliability issues. I I also give them a pass on that because the components that were proving problematic were standard supply components. They weren't components that they developed themselves. They yeah. were components that they had to buy as per the FIA regulations. And it was just bad luck that the parts that they bought seemed to fail. But to me, this team is is a solid A, absolutely. Uh, from everything from the, the re-signing of Sergio Perez, I think that's a fantastic move and it provides some stability to the organization. I think Max has matured hugely since the prior season. And I think ultimately he's in a position where he could win the championship by Japan, if not if not maybe one race later in the USA. And obviously he's going to win it with plenty of time to spare unless things go devastatingly wrong. But when you look at this team and you look at strategy and you look at reliability, that Honda power unit has been fantastic. That's been a tremendous partnership between between Red Bull and 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 the Japanese uh a motorsports company. I I just think they're in a really great place and I, I struggle to find a reason not to give them an A. I think the only kind of takeaway that I have from this organization is I shouldn't say takeaway. I think the only, the only thing that rubs me the wrong way about this organization at this point is helmet Marco. I think some of his off the track comments are are somewhat problematic. And I think that they need to find a way to keep him focused on the driver Academy, because obviously that's something that he does really well. And this team continues to pump out talent into formula one, which all the teams benefit from, but I just think everything about this team, Sergio has been strong, although he's obviously been a little bit softer since Azerbaijan. Max has been absolutely phenomenal. Doesn't step a foot, step a foot wrong. Even after Hungary, that wasn't even the story we're talking about because we just take it for granted now that he's going to run the, run the tables on the rest of the field. But I think this team has been the absolute benchmark of excellence in formula one this year. And like I said, I suspect they'll wrap up both championships by Japan. And if not Japan and the USA for sure. Well, it'd be appropriate time. And if it was to happen in Japan, of course, you know, the connections with Honda are still there and they're going to continue exactly. to be there for a few years. So that would be nice for them. If they could orchestrate that, that would be pretty incredible, of course. But uh, totally agree. I, I think an A is a fair grade for them. I'm going to say A minus. And the only reason why I'd say that is obviously one, I don't think they've produced the best car this season. I think Ferrari have, but I think again, it's what you do with it that counts. And Ferrari have had the best car in seasons gone by and they've still not won anything with that. So you can't really knock Red Bull too much with that. The car is still a little overweight. It has a bit of a dodgy front end and qualifying has still been a bit of an issue for them this season. 
So um, A, I think is a fair result. I might upgrade him just a little bit, given the benefit of the doubt on that one. That's fair. That's totally fair. Yeah. But um, of course, before we do sign off, Mark, and of course, guys, please do feel free to leave your own grades below and let us know your thoughts on not only our assessments of them, but also yours as well. We would love and appreciate you guys given that, uh, given your own analysis on this midseason review. Um, just two quick ones before we go, Mark. Um, do you have a favourite race and moment of the season so far? You know what? I, I'll say that maybe my favorite race of the season was Hungary, and obviously there's some recency bias in there. I was actually lucky enough to be invited onto the Ringer F1 show to do a race recap of Ooh. that event. And in the days leading into it, I was doing a lot of prep because I was anticipating a really bad race. And I had done pages of notes talking about all the reasons why Hungary is a relic and it needs to be replaced or why significantly significant amounts of work need to be done to make it a more attractive and exciting place for racing. But ultimately, the race turned out to be excellent and the race weekend itself holistically was a lot of fun and we saw incremental weather conditions and we saw dry conditions we saw uh, max storm from the back we saw more ferrari blunders to me that was probably the most exciting and interesting race of the season so far my favorite race on the calendar consistently is azerbaijan and i also obviously have a very soft spot for yas marina but my favorite race of the season so far and like i said there's probably some recency bias here was probably hungary just because of all the different storylines that that manifested themselves during that race and that weekend yeah i'm kind of tossing a coin at the moment between hungary and, and britain um, for different oh, reasons go. but uh, again the British bias coming out something that we often get accused of on this show a lot but uh, something fortunately Mark I'm sure you avoid uh, on your own show but uh, do you have a favourite moment this season? I mean I'll give you an example of one for me um, whilst you're thinking of one it's probably for the sh sure brilliance of it the 200 IQ driving Lewis Hamilton's double overtake on Perez and Leclerc at Club and Vale Corner at Silverstone. And purely, not just that, but the eruption of the British fans when they saw that. They could see what was happening where he sort of undercut the pair of them whilst they were squabbling. And I just thought that was phenomenal driving from Sir Lewis, especially going down the Sir Lewis Hamilton straight as well. Yeah, I think that would probably be mine as well, simply because I've been to Silverstone. I've seen Lewis qualify on pole there, and I know what the atmosphere is like. And I felt the ground shake when Lewis does something magical at that track. And I wasn't there, but I can only imagine what it would have been like. But I think that was probably, in terms of on-the-track action, probably one of my favorite moments. And that's also because I have a significant bias towards British drivers and, and Lewis <laughs> Hamilton, obviously. But I think yeah. that was a classic moment in a in a really, really entertaining season so far well you'll certainly be a beloved guest if you've got some sort of british bias about you on this show i can assure you of that much but of course you know we we try to have some fun with it we like to think that if we uh not necessarily annoy but if some fans don't agree and they're on both sides of the hamilton verstappen camp as many people will probably have seen on social media over the last few years you must be doing something right but i digress um mark of course ran a little bit over time there so we really appreciate you sticking around but so just as one more quick plug I'm going to give you the opportunity just to let our followers know that uh, a quick reminder as to where they can find your content. Thank you so much. So you can follow me on Twitter at Mark and Van City. You can follow us on uh, Twitter, the podcast itself at Scuderia F1 Pod. So again, uh, at Mark and Van City and at Scuderia F1 Pod. And of course, you can find the podcast on Twitter or not Twitter on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all of your favorite podcast aggregating platforms. And I think I may have mentioned this off the top, maybe not, but we are close to releasing our 400th episode and we're close to our seven year anniversary. So we've been around 
We're not the best. We're not the sharpest analysts, but we just have a lot of fun and we try to be inclusive and just try to have a fun, engaging community that people feel welcome in. So if you ever want to give us a shot, please do. And I'll give you a prop, my friend. I'd love to have you on the show in the near future. So I'll make sure to drop you a note and make arrangements so we can bring you on the show and return the favor. And for everyone listening at home, I will just add this thing as well. It means the world to podcast hosts and podcast producers. If you can give them a rating on Spotify and or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that means the world. So if you've been listening to DNFF1 and you like what you hear and you like what Adam does, make sure to go and give this show a rating and a review because it means the world to the people that put all the work into creating this type of content. And just as a quick disclaimer, guys, I did not pay Mark in any way to, uh, to give me that <laughs> shout out on on our, on the show, of course, but I really appreciate that, Mark. And it's quite a coup for me um, as a podcaster because I've enjoyed your show for some time. And Scuderia F1, I remember finding it when uh, obviously just flicking through to see some F1 fan made shows. And it was one of the reasons why we started DNF1. So really appreciate you coming on. And uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on as a guest on the show. But of course, guys, if you have enjoyed this, as Mark has kindly said, make sure to like and subscribe. Of course, we are on YouTube as well as you'll be watching this and we're chasing close to a thousand subscribers and of course, plenty more listeners on all podcasting platforms. So do get involved if you are enjoying what we are producing. And of course, until next time, guys, we have got the Belgium Grand Prix preview. F1 coming back after a long hiatus. It feels like it's been forever. I must say, despite the fact we've had a lot of races this season, but it feels like it's been forever the wait. But of course, we'll be back for that one with the DNF1 panel in full attendance. But until next time, guys, please stay safe. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. And remember, if you're not first, you're probably DNF1. Take care. Podcast Network.